If you don't have a Bible, there should be one of these laying on the floor around you. I invite you to pick that up and take a look at it. It's page 718 in this Bible. 718 is where that is, Luke chapter 5. Hey, I want to ask you a question. I know they're still taking their offering, and I know you guys have things to do with your hands. Uh, you maybe don't know what to do with your hands, but um, I have a question for you, and the question is this, and it's uh, honesty time. Okay, it's okay. This is a judgment-free zone. How many of you in some area of your life right now are just a little bit overwhelmed? Raise your hand if that's you. Pretty much everybody. All right. How many of you would say it's, uh, it's work-related or school-related? There's some project you're working on. There's something going on. There's way too much happening. A few of you uh, see a lot of school kids raising their hands. You're on fall break. I don't know what you're overwhelmed about. How many of you, it's an issue at home? It's a neighbor issue, a family issue. It's something going on there. If the, the overwhelming uh, source is sitting next to you, please don't raise your hand. That would be awkward. <laughs> How many of you, it's a, it's a health issue? Like there's something going on, you don't quite know what it is. And a few of you here, that, uh, it's an illness or an injury or something. I wonder how many of you would say that you just get overwhelmed by the prospect of relationships in your life in general. Like there's just too many people, too many dinners you need to have. I think my wife and I at any one time have about 25 people that we want to have dinner with. And it just seems really, really overwhelming. You've got so many relationships to juggle. And you, you won't even read your Facebook feed sometimes, right? Because you know that when you do, you're going to find two or three other people from high school or college that you just feel guilty that you haven't connected with in a long time. And, well, I've got to do that. I've got to get with them. And, we have, and, and all these people are counting on me, and I don't even have time to call them. And find out what's going on with their life. If you weren't overwhelmed when you came in, you're probably all overwhelmed by that now, right? You come to church and the pastor says, hey, get to know your neighbors. Join a small group. Uh, sir, sign up to serve. Invest in your kids. Invest in your marriage. Take all of these steps so that you can take that next step in all of these relationships and take them to the next level. And, and maybe you feel like that's just the thing that's going like, to push you over the edge. And now finally the nice young men in their clean white coats can come and they can take you to your new home in that nice place where the floors are all soft and cushy and there are no sharp objects around, right? And you feel like maybe that's the thing that's going to push you over the edge in relationships. Well, today, I hope that I have some relief for you. I think I've got some relief for you when we look at the life of Jesus and how he lived in relationships. I think I'll have some relief for you. But I think there's also a challenge in here for all of us too. I want to challenge you today as well. And so here's the challenge. I'll give you the challenge first. If you're a Christian, it is important to be in strategic, life-giving, disciple-making relationships. It's part of our call as followers of Jesus. If you're a Christian, Jesus modeled this for us uh, in his humanity. He modeled this for us. But what I hope you'll see through our discussion today is that Jesus was very intentional about the relationships he chose. And in his humanity, even in his short you know, three and a half or three and three quarters years of ministry on earth, Jesus didn't allow himself to be stifled by the fact that he wasn't going to make disciples of everyone. You know, so many times I think if, if we're followers of Jesus and we hear this call to go and make disciples, we feel like everybody around us is somebody that we've got to go make a disciple of. But what I think we'll find as we look at the life of Jesus is he didn't, he may have felt that pressure, but he didn't uh, live in that pressure. He didn't act out of that pressure. And, and I think he has something to say about our disciple making strategy. And even if you're not a Christian, I think what we're going to talk about today, I think there's some relationship gold in the message for you today too. So we've called this series, uh, The Son of Man, Walking as Jesus Walked. What we've been talking about for the last seven weeks now is the humanity of Jesus. 
Scripture tells us that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And if you're a Christian, and especially if you've been around the church a long time, uh, there's a chance that you don't really think much about what it means that Jesus was fully human. Oh, we get the fully God part, right? We see uh, him walking around and healing people and performing miracles and apparently reading people's thoughts. And we think that if Jesus was real and these stories were true, then he must have been God. He was clearly God and he was. You know, we believe that with all our heart. Jesus was God. But funny enough, the first disciples, his friends, the people that he walked around earth with, they understood first that Jesus was a human. They knew him in his humanity. They saw him walk around and, they, and get hungry and get tired, and they saw him laugh, and they saw him cry. But they had to be convinced that he was God. They understood his humanity, but had to be convinced of his deity. We understand his deity, but we have to be convinced of his humanity. And so over the course of this series, we've been looking at what it means, as his disciple John says, to walk as Jesus walked. Here's the verse we've been using. 1 John 2.6 says, This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And so over and over again in Scripture, this is not just this verse, although if the Bible says something once, it's still true, all right, if it says it once. But over and over again in Scripture, we're told, walk as Jesus walked, obey his commands, have the same mindset as Jesus, follow the example he set for us. And I firmly believe Scripture never commands us to do something that we are not capable of doing. But to do that, to walk as Jesus walked, we really have to understand how Jesus walked, right? That how he acted and how he behaved in his humanity. And so we've been talking about these six uh, resources, six priorities that Jesus used on earth. Uh, and it's this, this slide right here. And the, the acronym we've been using is Holy Spirit Power. You know, we talked uh, the second week about the Holy Spirit and how Jesus was conceived by the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. He, the, the Holy Spirit was active and living in Jesus in such a way that it was obvious to the men who wrote the gospel accounts of his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the men who wrote about Jesus. It was obvious to the Apostle Paul when he saw it that the Holy Spirit was active and living in Jesus' life. And now that same Holy Spirit is living in those of us who are followers of Jesus. The same Holy Spirit that led Jesus is leading us in our lives too, if we'll just let him. Then uh, week three, we talked about prayer. More than 40 times in scripture, we see Jesus in prayer with his heavenly father. He often withdrew to lonely places to pray, scripture tells us. The busier Jesus got, the more he took time to pray. And we can use that as our model for prayer. Next, we talked about obedience. Hebrews 4.15 says Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are. Now, I believe... When the Bible says he was tempted in every way, what it really means is every way. That Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet Jesus always chose obedience. Hebrews 4.15 said, but he never sinned. And that's a hard lesson to learn, and I have to learn it again and again. But Jesus got 100% on his obedience test. And then we looked at Jesus' relationship with the word of God. The Bible, Jesus had access to written scriptures. He had access to the Old Testament. He studied them from a young age. Uh, One author, Luke, says that Jesus grew in wisdom as he aged, that he learned wisdom. Jesus quoted scripture to fight temptation, to help teach other people and to make decisions in his life. We can do that too. We can use the word of God. Uh, to do that. And then finally, last week, Kevin Russell was here, did a great job, I think, of just talking about exalting the Father. You know, at least seven times in the book of uh, John, we see Jesus giving all the glory to his Father. Jesus said, I can do nothing 
except what the Father shows me to do, that he spoke nothing except what the Father told him to speak, that he, the miracles that he performed came from his Father, and that he sought only to please his Father. And we said, how would our lives be different if everyone around us knew that every good thing in our lives comes from our Father God? Well, the last resource we want to talk about this week are relationships. You know, Jesus was intentional about relationships. He models for us in our lives how we should conduct relationships. In fact, other than dying on the cross for our sin and three days later being raised to life, which I don't want to gloss over that. (laughs) That's a big, big deal. That's really important. It's the reason we celebrate Jesus. Uh, It's the reason we'll celebrate communion later. Uh, Jesus is the only person in history to ever predict his death and resurrection and then carry forth and fulfill that prediction and, and die and be raised from the dead again. So when you're trying to decide who to follow, go with the guy that said he was going to be raised from the dead and then got raised from the dead. I think that's my motto in life is if you're looking for somebody to follow, that's the guy. Go with the guy who beat death, all right, because all of us are going to encounter that at some time, and most of us want to overcome that. And so if we're looking to follow somebody, that, that's really important. Jesus died. He took our sin with, us to, with him to the cross. And then three days later, he was raised from the dead. Now, apart from that, after that, I think the most important thing Jesus did in his life was to assemble a small band of friends and followers who would then take his message out to the four corners of the world and start an institution in the church that would explode in growth and survive for more than 2,000 years. So how did he did that? How did, he, how did he do that? Through relationships. In fact, I think what you'll see today and, and then some next week, I, I told the band backstage, this is kind of uh, part seven, part one. Uh, we're like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings, you know, that we're doing uh, one message in two parts, but this is part seven, part one. Next week is part seven, part two. Uh, but, but what we're going to talk about this week and a little bit next week is that Jesus' strategy didn't involve relationships. It didn't, uh, he didn't use relationships that Jesus' strategy for making disciples, for taking his message to the, to the outermost corners of the world was relationships. That was his strategy. It was relationships. So let's take a look at our scripture for the day, Luke chapter 5. Again, it's page 718 in this Bible, Luke chapter 5, verse 1. I'll read through the scripture, and then we'll break it down. Uh, one day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret, um, your footnote may say this was also the Sea of Galilee. We know it better as the Sea of Galilee, not really a sea. It's more of a lake. Uh, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little bit from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they, began to come, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. 
Now, before we dive in too deep into what's being taught here, I want to talk about how we sometimes get this passage wrong. Because even as believers, even as followers, we can, if we don't really understand the life of Jesus, we can be led to believe that Jesus is just walking along one day, and he comes across these fishermen on the shore, and they're there washing their nets. They hear his teaching. It's amazing. He helps them catch some fish, and, and they're astonished, and they immediately drop their nets and follow this total stranger. All right? We, we, we can get that wrong if we look at it. I mean, in fact, the, the, parallel message, the parallel passage to this is in Mark chapter 1. And if it's in Mark chapter 1, it's got to be one of the first things that happens in Jesus' life, right? And so, but that's not what's happening here. In fact, Simon at this point, or Peter as we come to know him, has known Jesus for probably about a year and a half. And this event actually comes somewhere close to the midpoint of Jesus' ministry on earth. It's probably 18 to 21 months in uh, to Jesus' ministry after he's baptized by John the Baptist. How do we know that? Well, we can track it by the holidays that we see in the gospel, specifically counting the number of Passovers. All right, Passover was a holiday. All of the Jewish people uh, celebrated. We said a couple weeks ago that Jesus' family always went to Jerusalem for Passover, so we know that. But specifically, it, and, but it's difficult to get a feel just reading through the Gospels in your Bible. Uh, and so it's really helped me to have what's called a harmony of the Gospels. Uh, harmony of the Gospels takes uh, all of Jesus, all the accounts of Jesus' life as recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and places them in chronological order. Now, it doesn't add to Scripture. It doesn't take anything away. But see, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are... Uh, are four different accounts of the same set of events written by four different people. And, and some of them were around earlier, and some of them were around more for uh, later parts of the ministry. Luke, uh, the, the man who wrote the book of Luke, wasn't around Jesus at all during his life, as far as we know. But he interviewed all the eyewitnesses to these events. So he has probably the most thorough account, especially of the earliest years. So Luke is kind of used as the timeline uh, for a harmony of the, of the Gospels. But when they're put chronologically... Well, it's really opened my eyes to better see the strategy of Jesus and how he did ministry as he walked on earth. So, so what's happened in the first 18 months of Jesus' ministry? Well, we know that the first thing that happens to him as an adult that we see in Scripture is he's baptized by John, John the Baptist, right? And then Jesus immediately, Scripture says, goes into the wilderness. He's tempted for 40 days. He, he comes out of that. He runs into John the Baptist again who points at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't follow me, follow him. Now, John the Baptist at this point had built quite a big following. A lot of people were following John the Baptist and really uh, studying his ministry and learning from him. And so when Jesus comes out of the wilderness and John says, don't follow me, follow that guy, uh, some of the people take him up on it. In fact, uh, Jesus' first three followers probably come from that group. His first five actually probably come from that group. Uh, And there are Philip and Nathaniel, uh, Andrew and Simon and John, the one who, not John the Baptist, but the John who writes uh, the book of John. And so what does he do with these five? He spends time with them. That's what Scripture tells us, that he spends time with them, a year and a half or more before he ever calls them to this deeper relationship to go fish for people. This is so important. Jesus is intentional about spending time with him, but but here's maybe some relief in it for you. He doesn't go out of his way to spend time with these men. Instead, what we see in Jesus' strategy, this is so brilliant, is that he invites them in to what he's already doing. And so after these five men decide to follow Jesus for the first time, Jesus has to go to a wedding in Cana. It's probably a relative of his or of his mother's. And so he decides to take his disciples with him. And then he goes on to Capernaum and he goes to Jerusalem for Passover and he goes back down to Judea to start baptizing some people. And he takes his disciples along with him as he goes. 
He goes back up to his hometown in Nazareth, passing through Samaria. He takes his disciples with him. I think you and I have so much to learn from this because when we get those guilty feelings about spending time with people, here's what we're thinking in our brain. All right, that's going to mean a lunch or a coffee or something like that. And so I've got to stop whatever I've got to do for a few hours so that I'm in the right place to make it to that appointment, right? And so that means I can't do the four errands that I normally do on Tuesday morning. I can't go to the gym because the gym's too far away. And so I've got to find other time. And that that planning aspect of getting together with somebody just overwhelms us, doesn't it? Because basically, if I'm going to have lunch with somebody, I've got to arrange my entire day around it. Or maybe move stuff to other days to make sure that it still happens, right? But, but look at what Jesus did. He lived his life and brought people along with him. He lived his life and brought people along with him. I mean, how would that change your view of relationships if you viewed spending time with people more organically? Like, like in what, what if instead of trying to schedule a lunch or a play date, you invited your friend to go to the grocery store with you? That sounds weird, right? But you've got to go to the grocery store and there's a chance because most people buy food. There's a chance that your friend has to go to the grocery store too. So what if you guys walked down the aisle side by side and got the stuff that you needed and you had a conversation while you were doing something that you had to do anyway? You're both going to do that anyway. Or what if this afternoon you just invite your buddies over to, to watch the game with you? Chances are you're going to watch the game in the comfort of your own basement or living room or somewhere all by yourself. And at the same time, you're overwhelmed by the prospect that you've got all these people you want to spend time with. What if you all get together and watch the game together? You're doing something you're going to do anyway, but you're bringing people along. So relationship principle number one, I think there are three that we can learn from Jesus. These are in your notes. Uh, If you're taking notes on the app, they're there too. Um, Relationship principle number one, live your life and bring people along. Live your life and bring people along. How would your life change if you stop viewing people as an inconvenience? or as a schedule conflict, or as a hassle, and started viewing people as your mission. See, that's what we can get from Jesus's life. You know, one other verse we sometimes misunderstand is a command given to us by Jesus. Uh, We call it the Great Commission. He gives us during his last days on earth is in Matthew 28. Jesus, uh, one of the last things he says to his followers before he ascends into heaven, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now, there's a, an imperative statement in here for us. There is a directive. There's something that we're told to do. And so many times as we interpret this, we think, okay, that directive is go. The word go. Go and make disciples. But I've been told, and I've, uh, as I've done research on this, I understand that that's not right, that in just about every English translation of this scripture, that that's how that's written, therefore go or go therefore. But the Greek word that's actually used here is, is really long, and I can't pronounce it, uh, and you guys wouldn't remember it anyway, but many scholars think it's better, think it's better translated as, as you go. Like that the word that's used there is more indicative of a journey or a walk. It's not a, uh, a, a purposeful trip. The word's frequently described, you know, a walk. Like as you go, as you walk, go and make disciples. Now think about this because if the command is go, this won't really work because I'm sitting at home, I open up my Bible, I get to Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, and it says go, and I'm compelled by that, and I want to be obedient, and so I pack up all my stuff, 
and I move to Africa to go become a missionary. I go, right? The Bible says go, I go. And I get there. I unpack all my stuff. I leave all the relationships I've made behind. I leave all of my friends and family, my school, my kids' school, my, my work. And I go to Africa because I want to be obedient. I want to go make disciples. I get there, finally get everything unpacked. I settle down. I sit down in my chair. I open my Bible and it says, go. <sighs> Pack everything up and I go somewhere else in the world. And we never get around to the making disciples part. But if it says, as you go, make disciples, what that means is as I live my life, as there are people around me, those are the people that I'm supposed to make disciples of. And so Jesus is saying, as you go, make disciples. Wherever you go, there are people who need to know me. He says, integrate this into your life. Make it a part of your journey. And that's the model he gave us. He spends time with people. He, He took them along for the journey. But he didn't take everyone. And I think that's going to lead us to the second relationship principle. In fact, there's a, uh, another thing we see here from this encounter on the Sea of Galilee, Luke 5, 1. <clears throat> One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret, also called the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. Now, here's what I want you to see. There's a large crowd. Why? Well, because at this point, it had become apparent Jesus, I mean, remember, we're a year and a half into Jesus' ministry. He's got some fame right now. It's become apparent he was not only a good teacher, but Jesus loved everyone. He loved everyone. We never see Jesus other than in a state of love. When he rebukes people, it's out of love. When he watches people walk away, like uh, the rich young ruler, he tells him what he has to do. The rich young ruler is not willing to do it. The scripture says that Jesus looked at him and loved him even when he walked away. Uh, when Jesus sees a crowd of people, Scripture tells us Jesus had compassion on them. Jesus loved everyone. Okay, but let's look further. Verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. So while Jesus loved everyone, he ministered, in this case, to the fishermen. Right? He served the fishermen. He helped them catch fish. In fact, uh, he feels compassion on the fishermen. Uh, they've been out all night. They haven't caught anything. And so Jesus decides to minister to them, to serve them. Now, he also served the people who might have wanted to buy fish in the market. There were probably no fish in the market because nobody had caught anything. Right? So Jesus loves everyone. He served many people, right? Okay, now what happens next? Verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now, Jesus, in this case, specifically calls Peter, James, and John to follow him. Now, here's what we can see in this, okay? And I think, I hope you're getting this picture, that there's a lot of people gathered around. Jesus loved all of them. There's a few people that he served, that he ministered to, but there's a very few that he called, right? And so, this is so important to us. If you're a Christian, I hope this will be freeing to you. Jesus loved everyone. He ministered to many but he only made disciples of a few. 
There, there are a few people that he invested most of his time with. In fact, think about this. At the end of his life, Jesus had 11 apostles. Well, I mean 12. One of them was not exactly a screaming success, right? After, even after his resurrection and 40 days on earth, walking around as a dead man who was now alive, only 120 people met in the upper room in that very first church service. You know, relative to the number of people that Jesus met, that he taught, that heard him teach, he made disciples of a few. So here's our principle to take from that. This is relationship principle number two. Love everyone, serve many, invest in a few. You know, we're, we're called to love everyone. That's hard. That's hard enough sometimes, isn't it? We are called to love that neighbor who lets their dog poo in our yard, Right? We're called to love that person. At the same time, we're called to love people that we disagree with politically. We're called to love people who uh, come from other countries. We're called to love people who are running for president. We're called to love everyone. We're called to serve a lot of people. Right? We're called to serve many. Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. He came to serve but we're called only to invest in a few. Now, that's really easy to say, and it's much harder to do. And the hardest part for most of us, I think, is who are the few? How how do I decide who the few are? Who are these people I'm called to be in deep relationship with? Who who are the ones I should be intentional with and, and make disciples of? I've got 25 dinners waiting on my calendar. Who are the few? 25 is not a few, right? Who are the few? Well, first, I want to confess that I don't always get this right. I hope you've heard that. (laughs) But I think this very same passage gives us some hints as to why Jesus chose the many did, why he chose Peter, James, and John, among others, to become part of the 12. And so I'm going to give you the principle first, and then we're going to look at the scripture and draw it out, okay? And the principle is this. This is principle number three. Look for people who are after more. Now, you'll notice in here I have after in all caps, and that's because it's an acronym, if you're taking notes on the card or the app, you already knew that, okay? But, but I want to show you what Jesus may have seen in Peter, James, and John through this passage in Luke chapter 5. All right, verse 1 through 3 tells us that Jesus was teaching. He saw their boats. Peter, James, and John were already in Jesus' orbit, right? He knew them. He, he had already walked. They had already walked with him for a long time. And so they were already in the orbit of Jesus. He had spent time with them. They were A, they were available. Peter, James, and John were available to Jesus. You know, technology today has made it so easy for us to keep up with relationships, even long-distance relationships, but in a pretty superficial way, right? Uh, but to really build those deep, meaningful, long-distance, long-lasting, or long-lasting relationships, people need to be available. And there's a space and a time uh, aspect to availability. People who are closer to us physically are usually more readily available. That's why we talk about our neighbors and uh, parents on our kids' sports teams and people at your school. You know, they're regularly in our orbit, and so they're available. But there's a time element to availability too. The, the truth is you'll find some people that are physically close to you that are just too busy for meaningful relationships. And that doesn't make it your responsibility to wedge yourself into their schedule. So many times we feel that, man, don't you feel that? Sometimes isn't that where some of that overwhelmingness comes from? Like I've got to meet with this guy, but he's only available Tuesday from 5.30 to 6.30 a.m. And if I don't wedge myself into his schedule, then I'm never going to be able to make a disciple of that person. But, but now you may need to have a conversation with them 
about how their schedule is preventing them from having long-term, deep, meaningful relationships. And hopefully you've got that kind of clout that you can go to them, that you've cared enough about them, that when they hear you say that, they'll listen to you. That may be your responsibility. They say, hey, I'd like to spend more time with you, but the truth is you're way too busy. Like your lifestyle just prevents us from getting together. But Peter, James, and John were available to Jesus. Verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. Now you can see, first of all, the humanity of Jesus and how this comes into play, right? And how Peter understood Jesus, knew Jesus first as a man. Because don't you just kind of sense that Peter wants to say, aren't you a carpenter? Like I'm the fisherman here. You know, I'm a professional. I've been doing this for a while. My dad was a fisherman. We know what fishing is. You know that, remember, why don't you go build a bookcase or something and let us do the fishing? It's kind of what you hear in Peter's voice when you hear this. But, but then he also says this. He says, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. Now, I want you to know that this wasn't a small deal for Peter. Uh, the Bible tells us that when Jesus came upon them, they were washing their nets. In other words, they were done. They were ready to pack up and go home. They had already been out all night. They'd been fishing. They hadn't slept. They had washed off their nets. They were putting things away, getting ready to go. And Jesus says, no, go, go let off the nets. So this is not a small deal. But what he found was that Peter was F. He was faithful. Peter was faithful. And one of the worst mistakes we can make in a disciple-making relationship is to choose somebody who's halfway in. When you decide to do a study together or to, to read a book of the Bible or to pray together, if they're not willing to do the work, I mean, that may be God's way of just telling you, no, it's time to move on. And that, 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 that they keep canceling your meetings, that may tell you something about where this relationship fits on their priority list. Now, that doesn't mean you stop loving them, right? We love everyone. That doesn't even mean you stop serving them. We're called to serve many, but it may be time to move on in your disciple-making relationship. Jesus looked for people who were faithful. Now, in verses 6 through 8, we see that they catch a large number of fish. In verse 8, Peter immediately sees something in Jesus that he hadn't seen before. He falls to his knees and he says, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Peter learns something and he immediately reacts. Uh, Peter was T. He was teachable. There are few things that will make you more frustrated as a disciple maker than a long-term relationship where someone just refuses to change. You've been meeting with them for many months or years, and they're just not teachable. That, that every time you get together, you keep talking about the same problems, the same habits, the same marriage struggles, the same relationship troubles, and you feel like you're just banging your head against the wall every time you get together because they're just not teachable. Verse 9 and 10, Peter, James, and John see this catch of fish, and they are astonished. As relational people, and especially as disciple makers, as, as uh, not everybody's like me, but if you're an extrovert and you're a relational person, you draw energy from people who are E, enthused. You know, Peter, James, and John saw this catch of fish, and they were excited. In fact, there's a parallel passage where Peter sees this catch of fish, and he gets out of the boat, and he tries to run across the water to Jesus. I love that. That's so Peter that he's going to leave his friends behind to haul the fish back in, and Peter's going to go run to Jesus. But I love that. They were enthused. Enthusiasm helps keep us excited about these relationships. You know, when, when we are disciple makers, and we really want to see 
uh, change happen in people's lives when, when, when something happens and they make a discovery and they can't wait to tell us about it. That just is, it's fuel for us, right? It's fuel uh, that keeps us wanting to do more and know more. We, we like to call this uh, around here, we've been calling this when people get excited about something that we see people popping. Like when, when they hear this and, and they get excited about maybe studying the next thing about the life of Jesus that they're popping, you know, like popcorn, like when you put the bag of popcorn in the microwave, because we all do popcorn in microwaves now, right? And uh, you, about 45 seconds in, you hear that first pop, 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 and you start to get excited. And like my dog comes up to the microwave and sits and waits, like she knows what's happening. We all get excited about when those kernels pop. We want to be enthused about what they're learning. But, but, and this is something we'll talk about a little bit next week. What happens... If you let, if you decide to wait until all of the kernels pop, what happens, Robin? If you decide to wait until all the kernels pop, <laughs> the whole office smells like burnt popcorn. That's what happens. You can't wait for all the kernels to pop. When you see people start popping, you got to do something with them, right? We want people who are enthused. And finally, in verse 10 and 11, we see the call that Jesus makes. Uh, verse 10, then Jesus says to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. You know, finally, these fishermen were are. They were responsive. They were responsive when they heard the call. Jesus was looking for people who would respond to his call. Now, from this moment on in Scripture, let me tell you what we see. After calling the, the first of the 12 apostles, we see Jesus intentionally investing in relationships. From this point on, if you read the rest of Scripture, we see him 17 times with the masses, and 43 times with the few. Like his whole ministry basically flips upside down after this point. He, he spends much less time with the masses and much more time with the few. What we see is Jesus strategically, intentionally investing his time, energy, and effort in a very few people. And they went on to have a huge impact after he left them. Did you know that in your life, your greatest impact will come not from what you accomplish or the money you make or the things that you build and do, but that your greatest impact will come through the lives you influence through relationships. That that if you want to leave a legacy, it won't be through a bigger house or a nicer car or a cleaner kitchen, but through the lives you reach in relationships. And at the end of his life, right before he went to the cross, Jesus was able to honestly look at his disciples, these men that he'd spent three and a half years of his life with, and say, John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants, Because a servant doesn't know his father's business, his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. That even in his brief time, even knowing the pressure that was on him to make disciples who would make disciples, who would build the church, who would reach the whole world with the good news, Jesus didn't view these men as projects, but as friends. And if you and I want to expand our influence and and reach the world, We could do no better than walking as Jesus walked by strategically, intentionally investing our time, energy, and effort in a few people who we could call friends. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for that example. Um, What a great, rich story uh, that sometime in the past really happened that was captured so that we could use it uh, to see the heart of Jesus in relationships. God, we're so thankful for that. And we're thankful for how he was strategic about investing his time and Lord, that he picked just the right people and invested just the right way so that 2000 years later, we're here to worship him today.
And we're thankful for that today, God. We pray uh, in the name of Jesus for your hand to be on our relationships. That, that you would show us, first of all, how to love everyone. And that you'd show us how to serve many. And then, God, you would point us to the few that we should invest in so that we can have a lasting legacy for you and for your glory, God. We thank you for the relief that this offers. We thank you for the challenge that it brings. And Lord, we just pray that even now you'd begin to show us in our life who those few people are. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.